please open to the book of James. This morning, we are going to start a series on the book of James. We're going to look at every single verse in this book over the next several months. This is the book of James, chapter 1. Today, looking at verses 1 through 4. If you're able, please stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Pray with me. Lord, this is your word. Do with it as you please today. May your spirit work amongst us, Father. Grow us, mold us, change us, conform us to your image. If there's one here who doesn't know Christ, we pray for that person, that he or she might come to know you today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Friends, the book of James is one of the most practical books in the entire Bible. In fact, the sermon series title that I'm given this whole series is this, that James is practical truth for the Christian life. And I want you to know as we study this book, James is going to teach you and me how to live the Christian life, that is how you and I are to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as James teaches us through these five chapters, he's going to give us some realistic illustrations, some down-to-earth examples. In fact, he's going to reach into the past and grab many of the stories in the Old Testament and use those stories as illustrations to teach us practical truths for Christian living. Now, friends, today we have a lot to cover because not only are we going to introduce the book, but we're going to examine the first four verses of James chapter 1. So let's go ahead, jump right in, dive in. If you have your bulletin, look on the back. There's an outline on the back that should help guide you as we walk through this sermon today. Four points I want you to see from this opening sermon from James. First of all, we're going to introduce the book. We're going to look at the basics of the book of James. But then the next three points, we're going, to, we're going to go through the first four verses. And in those four verses, I want you to see the expectation of trials, the joy of trials, and the goal of trials. James talks all about trials in the Christian life today. But before we get to trials, let's look at what I call the basics of the book of James. This point answers the who, the when, and the what questions about James. So first of all, let's look at the who. Who is the author? Well, of course, the author is James. Now, who is James? Before we look at what verse 1 says about James, what he says about himself, 
Let's look at what the rest of the Bible says about the person James. You know, as we study the scriptures, we find that this James was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Growing up in the same house that Jesus grew up in? Well, that's what happened to James. If you read the book of Acts, Luke says that James was one of the leaders in the church at Jerusalem. In fact, when you get to Luke 15, you see that James was the spokesman for the Jerusalem council. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to James right after he was raised. And it says that James was one of the pillars of the early church there in Jerusalem. So the Bible says a whole lot of great things about James. There's a lot of accolades that you could say that James has. But what is interesting is that even though James has all these accolades, leader in the church, spokesman for the Jerusalem council, brother of Jesus, he doesn't mention one of them in his book. He could have. He could have said, I'm James. My brother's Jesus. Who else could say that? I was the leader at the Jerusalem Council. Don't you realize what I did for the church? By the way, after Jesus rose from the dead, I was one of the people that he appeared to first. He could have said all of that. That actually happened. That was true about James. But he chose not to do it. You see, in spite of his prominence, in spite of all of his accolades, what stands out about James is his humility. Look at verse 1. What does James say about himself? James, a servant. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now wait a second. I'd say there's many people in this room that have brothers or sisters. Could you imagine? Could you imagine saying, I am a servant of my brother, or I am a servant of my sister? Because that's exactly what James does in this text. He says, not I'm a great leader in the church, I led the Jerusalem council. He says, I'm a servant. Not only am I a servant, I'm a servant of my brother, Jesus. So what you see is that God had done a work on James's heart and his life. God had convicted him of his sins, brought him to faith in Jesus, and brought him to the point that he would openly and publicly say, yes, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. My life is dedicated to him. Folks, the focus here is on James's humility. Friends, the Bible teaches us that humility is one of the true marks of a believer. In fact, in the Old Testament and repeated in the New Testament, it says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace 
to the humble. The humility never looks to its own interest, but always to the interest of others. The Lord Jesus talked about blessed are the poor in spirit. What he's talking about is someone who is humble before God, who sees his need of the grace of God because of his own sin. And he's realized that grace because God's poured it out to him. God's changed James's heart. And it teaches us that no matter how much prominence or prominence we might have in life, how many accolades come our way, the mark of the true believer is humility and not pride. Well, that's the who. How about the when? The when and the who for the audience. When is James writing and who is he writing to? Well, as we study this book, we learn that James is probably writing in the early to mid-40s. And he's writing in Jerusalem, but who's he writing to? He's writing to Jewish Christians, you see it, the 12 tribes, right? In verse 1, the 12 tribes, who are located outside of Israel. You see that word, the dispersion. What that word means is that people who were living outside the geographical boundary of Israel, outside the land. These are folks who've come to know Jesus as their Savior, living outside the land. Now, there's several different reasons that these folks were living outside the land. Just some history here. In 722, the Assyrians came, and they sacked northern Israel, and they took a group of Israelites to Assyria. A few years later, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar sacked the southern kingdom of Judah and exiled the people of God to Babylon. In 63... The Romans had their way with many of the Jews, and they were put outside the land. Some decided to move outside the land for jobs or other reasons. But the main point is, is that James is writing to Christians, those who have trusted Christ outside the land. They were originally Jewish. They had trusted Christ. They're living outside the land. And these folks are going through trials. They're going through difficulties, persecutions. And James is writing to those believers. Folks, I want you to know that just as James is writing to believers going through trials back then, he's writing to us today as well. Christians, we live outside the land. We also are going through trials and temptations ourselves. Thirdly, what? What's James' purpose? You know, in the book of James, these five chapters, there's no huge sections on theology like there is in Romans or in Ephesians. Rather, in James, you have practical applications of how to live the Christian life. That's why we're calling this practical truth for the Christian life. It's said that in James, uh, that, that James is probably the most proverbial book in the entire New Testament. In James, there's a focus on living under the lordship of Christ amongst different issues. What are the issues? Anger, being a hearer but not a doer. James focuses on boasting and complaining. He talks about folly. Today, he talks about going through trials. He talks about gossip. He talks about oppressing and insulting the poor. He talks a lot about pride. Folks, there is a huge emphasis on living out the moral law of God in obedience to Jesus Christ. Friend, if you are here today and you are asking this question, 
How do you live the Christian life? James has your answer. In five chapters, he says, this is how you live the Christian life. This is what it means to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What we're going to learn, folks, is that scripture affects the way you live. That the Bible is not just for a Sunday morning worship service. That we come here to be, we, we want to get the Bible poured into us on Sunday morning. That we're grounded so that when we walk out these doors, we're growing in our relationship with Him and taking the gospel to people that need it. And James teaches us how to do it. How? The first way James does is by teaching believers that we should expect trials in our lives. This is our second point. The expectation of trials. Look at verse 2. The Bible says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. A few moments ago, our brother Ladd read from the book of John, quoting Jesus in the 15th and 16th chapters. Here's a reminder of some of the things Jesus said. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Friends, I want you to know that there's a false teaching going on in the church today. And that false teaching says, if you come to Jesus, all your troubles will go away. If you come to Jesus and really have enough faith in God, you will get what's called the health and wealth gospel. God will only grant you the good life, that is good health and plenty of wealth. Friends, I want you to know that the scriptures teach us today that that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, the Bible says today to you and me as believers, in this life we should expect trials and hardships to come. Let's look at at least three biblical examples of that. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph, the son of Jacob, was one of 12 brothers. Yet his brothers were so jealous of him that they faked his death. They lied to their dad. They threw him in a pit. And then they sold him into slavery. Joseph went through so much suffering, not because of his sin, but because probably the sins of his brothers and even the sins of his father playing favorites. Then when he got settled in Egypt, he was working for Potiphar, finally established himself in Potiphar's house. Well, what happened? He was falsely accused. Potiphar's wife blamed him for something that he didn't do, and he was put in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And then he met the cupbearer, right? And he thinks to himself, yes, this person will stand before the king and speak on my behalf. Don't forget me, cupbearer. Oh, I won't forget you, Joseph. Or what happens? He's forgotten by the cupbearer. Removed from his homeland, removed from his family, sold into slavery, put in prison for a crime he didn't commit. That sounds like the health and wealth gospel, doesn't it? You want to sign up for that? But God didn't leave him, did he? 
God knew exactly what was going on in Joseph's life. God was faithful to Joseph, raised him up out of that prison cell, used Joseph to interpret dreams. Joseph became second in command of all of Egypt. And God used Joseph's skills and talents when Egypt needed him the most because there was a famine in the land. And God used Joseph to store up all that food and feed everyone when they had a need. Then his brothers came back and didn't recognize him. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. They're terrified. But by that point, what had happened? All those trials that God had put Joseph through, God used them to teach not only Joseph, but his brothers, hey, what you did was evil against me, but God meant it for good. Friends, God allows trials to come into our lives because he uses those trials for his glory. How about Acts 16? Paul and Silas, they're on a missionary journey. Paul's already done one. He's on the number two. Picks up Silas, picks up Timothy. They go to Philippi. They get to Philippi. They meet a girl named Lydia. God opens her heart. She gets saved. They go into the town. They see a demon-possessed girl that... The people of the town, they're using her to make money. Paul and Silas see that, and they say, this is not a good thing. And under the power of Jesus Christ, through their ministry, that girl was made whole. The people who were using her did not like it one bit. And what did they do? They took Paul, and they took Silas, they beat them, they put them into prison, their hands and feet were shackled. Sounds like the health and wealth gospel, doesn't it? You want to sign up for that? God allowed them to go through a trial. Yet they were faithful in that prison. Again, God knew what was going to happen. He didn't leave them. They sang hymns. They prayed. And God literally opened a door in their lives. But they didn't run. Philippian jailer was scared to death, wasn't he? Scared to death. What's going to happen if these guys run? We're here, Paul says. What does he say? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your house. Guess what? God allowed Paul and Silas to go through a trial so that this guard could get saved. So his family could hear about Jesus. God uses trials in the lives of his people. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ himself went through a trial. The Bible says he sweated drops of blood before going to the cross. Lord, if this cup can pass for me, let it pass, but not my will, your will be done. Christ himself went through a trial. God never left Jesus Christ. And God raised him from the dead so that you and I could be saved. And we remember the words of Jesus. The words that Lad read just a moment ago. In this world, you will have tribulation. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John MacArthur says it this way. If our perfectly holy Lord could endure the unimaginable agony of undeservedly taking the world's sin upon him, how can we not endure willingly and with thanksgiving 
the immeasurably lesser and deserved sufferings that test us from time to time. Friends, are, are we surprised when trials come? Many of us might be. If that's you here today, what is God teaching you? He's teaching all of us to expect trials, not to be surprised when trials come. But then James moves forward. And he teaches us how to meet these trials. Our third point today, he teaches us to meet them with joy. Look at verse 2 once again. Count it all joy. Now wait a second. That sounds weird, right? Joy of all words, James, that you could pick. You picked joy, that that's what I should think when trials are coming. Some people will say, wait a second. There's some other responses that are more familiar to me, like anxiety or fear or anger or despair. James, if you had said, consider it sorrow or consider it dread or consider it pain, I could identify with that. But you're saying joy? Explain that, James. We're reminded of verses like Hebrews 12, 2, which say this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Friends, let's, let's think about Jesus in this. He, it says that Jesus considered it joy. See, Jesus looked beyond the trial. He looked beyond the trial to the joy that he knew would be his when the trial was over. Why? Because he knew his father and he knew his father's plan. Let's think about that for a minute. What do we know about our father? And what do we know about our father's plan that would enable you and I to consider trials a joy? There's a phrase in verse 3. I want you to see it. It says, for you know. It's the first three words. For you know. Let's ask ourselves this question. What do we know about God? What do we know about our Heavenly Father? Let's talk about that for a second. Don't we know that God is sovereign? That He is above all subject to no one? We know that He knows about our trials. Our trials might be a surprise to us, yes, but they're not a surprise to him. We know that. We know that he's the one who allowed the trial to come into our life. We know that John 10 says that we're in his hands and he'll never let us go. And we know that Romans 8.28 says that he will use all things for our good. So, beloved, because he is sovereign, because he knows the end from the beginning, because we're in his hands, because he will work all things out to our good, you and I can have joy. I want this is this is a huge point for your biblical understanding. 
What you know about God determines the way you live your life. What you know about God should determine the way you live your life. Don't let your feelings dictate what you know about God's word. Let God's word dictate your feelings to you. Do you see that? Listen, feelings aren't bad, but bad feelings are bad. Misinformed feelings are bad. Oftentimes there's her feelings and there's what God says. Sometimes they match, sometimes they don't. What do you do in a situation like that? Do you trust your feelings or do you trust what God says? Easy question, right? We know the answer. We trust what God says, but how easy is that to live out? That is so hard to live out sometimes. What are you and I called to do? We are called to take what God says and let that be supreme and sovereign in our lives and bring our feelings, our emotions under what God says. Because you want your feelings to be biblical feelings. You want your feelings to be biblically informed not something you just make up yourself. And as you go through a trial, you want to hold on to something that's not shaky, but something that's solid. What's solid? The Word of God. And we need to bring our feelings under the authority of God's Word. So as you're going through a trial, hold on to the truth of Scripture. That God is sovereign, that you're in his hand. He will never let you go. He knows the end from the beginning. He allowed it to come into your life. And he is a good father. And he says to you, if you ask him for a piece of bread, he's not going to give you a stone. If you ask him for a fish, he is not going to give you a serpent. He is a good father. The Bible says to us, that we can have joy because we know this, that he's growing us in our faith. He's working out all things to our good. Think about this. He built patience in the life of Joseph, didn't he? He built contentment in the life of Paul and Silas in that prison. He even put joy into the heart of his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I can be joyfully confident in God Because he is refining us through the trials that he takes us through. Well, that brings us to the last point then. The goal of trials. Look at three and four with me one more time. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. Simply put, the goal of trials is to produce Christian character. Paul was going through a trial when he wrote the book of Philippians. He was in Roman prison. And he wrote to the church at Philippi, the same church where he and Silas were put in prison after they were beaten, after Lydia got saved, same place. He wrote to them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God has a goal in mind when he puts a trial in your life and in my life. There's a goal in mind. That's what this text says. What is that goal? The first part is found in verse 3. Look at it. Verse 3 says... For you know that the testing of your faith produces 
steadfastness. Will you persevere? Will you persevere? Is Jesus just something that you want temporarily and you're willing to give up in life? Or will you persevere? God wants a people who are steadfast, immovable, persevering in the faith. Perseverance is one of the goals. But then secondly, look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, there's a, there's a reason now for the steadfastness. If there's the, One of the goals is steadfastness, but now let's look beyond that because steadfastness is going to have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does that mean, perfect and complete? Perfect certainly doesn't mean without sin. It couldn't mean that. What it rather means is that it means uh, mature, fully developed. Complete has the idea of something that is whole or entire or mature, that God gives us trials to mature our faith. Think about this example with me. We just talked about this a few weeks ago. John chapter 11, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus dies, yes? Mary and Martha, before Lazarus dies, he's just sick at this point, before Lazarus dies, they send word to Jesus, Lazarus is sick. What did they think Jesus would do? They thought he would get up immediately and go heal Lazarus, right? They, Jesus could heal sick people. He had already made the blind man see, healed the man at the pool at Bethesda. They knew he could heal sick people. Jesus come heal the sick man. What did Jesus do? He waited. He waited. He allowed Mary and Martha to go through a trial. Why? He wanted to produce steadfastness in them. Why? In order that they might be more mature in their faith. You see, Mary and Martha knew Jesus was powerful. That's why they asked him to come. But they didn't know how powerful he was, did they? Because they cried when Lazarus died. They said, Jesus, you got here too late. Yeah, we know you're powerful, but there's no way you could raise the dead. That wasn't even a thought. So God gave them a trial. He pushed them. He tested them. And he cried with them when they didn't understand. How amazing is that? And then Jesus raised the dead man. And there was dancing at the end of the morning. And Christ taught them who he was, who he is, that they might see fully who Jesus is, how powerful Jesus is. He gave them a trial. He gave them a test. He wanted them to fully develop as a believer. Folks, what is God doing with you? What trial is God taking you through right now? Because he's going to give you a test. He's going to give you a trial. Expect it. That's what this text says. Expect it with joy. Here's one illustration. This is a story from Dr. Kistemacher. Um, it's very appropriate for the month of August, especially those maybe who just moved in a college student to uh, college over the past week. I know several people in our congregation have done that. I know the Timberlakes did that, uh, I think, yesterday with Jonathan. 
So I'll use Jonathan as an illustration. Dr. Kistemacher said, a person who is accepted by an admissions office to a college or, or a university can say something like this, hey, I'm a college student. Jonathan can even say, hey, I am a student at Anderson College. But Dr. Kistemacher makes this point. Until that young man takes tests and examinations, he can't actually affirm that he is actually a student worthy of that name. The only way to determine the worth of a student's work is to see his performance on his exams. Dispensing with exams would hinder the professors at the school and administration at determining the student's ability. And friends, I want you to know that God says he gives us trials. He gives us exams that will test us in our lives, that we might grow in maturity with him, that we might be perfect and complete, building perseverance steadfastness, patience. Friends, as we end this sermon today, several questions for all of us to ponder. Simply put, what trial are you going through right now? And did that trial surprise you? Or did you expect it? Many times on our side, it's unexpected, it's surprising, yet for God it's not. And he teaches us that when trials happen, first of all, expect them to happen, but number two, walk through them with joy. If God gave trials to Joseph, if he gave trials to Paul and Silas, if he gave them to Mary and Martha, if he gave them to his own son, Will he not also give them to us? As you go through your trial, do you throw your hands up in the air and run this way to worry, as I've done many times in my life? Or do you receive it with joy? Joy because you know that God designed your trial for a purpose. That purpose is steadfastness. And steadfastness will lead you to Christian maturity. Friends, today James is saying this is what it means to live the Christian life. It's a life that's full of trials. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus never came to take the trouble out of life. Jesus said, in this world when you have trouble, you can take heart because I've overcome this world. Jesus says, in the midst of your trial, trust me. Remember Joseph, remember Paul, remember Mary and Martha, remember Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Yet Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured. We can endure with joy as well. Because we know who God is, right? We know he's good, we know he's great. We're going to let his word be sovereign over our feelings. He's going to push us towards growth and maturity, push us out the door to grow up. Friends, let us not only see our trials, but let us see all of life through the pages of Scripture. Pray with me, please. Lord, today we admit that oftentimes we forget 